Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're finishing up this uh, study that we've done on spiritual warfare. I was kind of, as I was in my study getting ready to come out tonight, I was thinking about this. You know, the danger when you've come to church a lot, and that's not dangerous to come to church a lot, but the danger in coming is that we can have, live in two different worlds. We have our church world, and then we have the real world out there. And so we come and hear a, a series like this on spiritual warfare about the armor of God and the different pieces of the armor and different aspects of spiritual warfare, and we take notes and write down and we study it. That's really good. And then we go out there and have no idea how it applies in my life. And one of the things the Lord's been dealing with me about when we were away earlier this year is he said, son, so often you read the word, you study the word, you know the word, but it's the word that you do that changes you. It's acting on it. It's applying it in your life. And, you know, that kind of shocked me because I, I sort of thought I was doing it, but I learned a long time ago, don't b- debate with God. When he tells you something about you, he knows. And so it's something we need to learn. And so I just want to challenge you as we listen to this tonight that not to come away and say, well, we've learned about this piece of the armor tonight and leave it here until next week so we pick up the next one, but especially this one tonight. We're talking about the spiritual warfare because you're all in spiritual warfare to one degree or another, and if you don't think you are, then you're most likely losing it because it is a warfare that every one of us is involved in because we all have a common enemy, and that's Satan. We may not like to think that we have an enemy out there, but he wants you to not think there's an enemy out there, but he is our enemy. Jesus dealt with him that way, and we're going to see that a little bit tonight. So let's read down there, and we're going to get to the next part of this. Verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the deceits of the devil. So we see that, saw that for a Christian, Satan's devices in this warfare against us are deceit and wiles and tricks, not his power. For we do not wrestle against, but he's very deceitful and he's very, he's very uh, wily, like wily coyote. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, because we're in this battle, take up the whole armor of God. And what we've seen before is these different parts of armor represent... the, The Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to them, and therefore to us, what this armor is like, and he's using something that they were familiar with. They were very much aware of what the armor that a Roman soldier wore because all around them there were Roman soldiers. They were occupied by Rome and Rome stationed garrisons of their soldiers in Jerusalem and in Galilee. Every time you went into a city, there were Roman soldiers all around dressed in this armor and, and, and so they understood this. And so the apostle is Paul is using something they were very familiar with to teach them a spiritual principle. So don't get hung up on what the piece of armor looked like, although I'm going to show you one tonight, but understand the spiritual principle that's behind it. And the spiritual principle is this, is what he's telling us is to put God on, because these are different characteristics of God. He says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And to do that, we have to put him on 
Often in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, story after story. We looked at one last week, which was David and Goliath. And we saw when David went into battle against Goliath, he declared, for the battle's not mine, but it's the Lord's. Jehoshaphat, when God spoke to him about bringing the people of Israel, of Judah, into battle against those three enemies, what the Lord spoke is, he says, if you go out to the edge of the battlefield and put your worship team in front and praise and worship me, I will defeat the enemy for you because the battle's not yours, it's mine. Well, in the spiritual warfare we're in, it's the same principle. The battle's not yours, not not mine, and yours, it's the Lord's. That's why he says, be strong in the Lord. So while he's fighting the battle, we need to put on armor so that we're not injured and quit. So these pieces of armor simply represent aspects of God's character, and since we're God's children, we already have this inside of us. Several places the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians and in Colossians, put Christ on. He didn't say go get him, he said put him on. This is a sweater I have. I could put it on tonight because I already had it, but I had to put it on. His nature is in you if you're a child of God. He was birthed in you when you received the Spirit of God and you were, that's how you were born again. So you have His nature in you, it's just that we don't often wear it or we wear pieces of it. So this is what the Apostle Paul is challenging us to do. And so we've looked down through these. He said, um, and having done all to stand, verse 14, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I'm not going to go back over these. Having put on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking the and we're going to talk about this one tonight, taking the shield of faith. We talked about last time about the helmet of salvation in verse 17. But back in verse 16 is the one I want to talk about tonight. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which, which you're able to ca- quench all the, all, all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Isn't it interesting? It starts out by saying, above all. Above all these other pieces of armor, make sure you pick up the shield of faith. I think it says that for several reasons. One of is a shield was something, and I'm going to show you a picture of it in a minute. A shield was something, and we talked a little bit about that last week. A typical soldier going into battle had a sword, he had the armor, and he had typically, he either had what was called a buckler, which was a round, it looked like a trash can lid, except it was sturdier than that. And he held that, that was strapped to this arm so that if he was in hand-to-hand combat, he could block the blows with one hand and use his sword with the other hand. But, a, but the shield was something much bigger, and it was used in a different kind of warfare. It was used when they would lock themselves together, and they would have their cohort out, which was a group of them, and they would literally stand together. Was one, of the, one, of the, um, one of the formations was called the turtle. And the ones in front would put these in front of them, and the ones behind them would put them over their head. And they would literally walk up towards their enemy, shielded from the rocks and the arrows that would shot into them. So, in fact, if you can put that picture up, I'm going to show you, dim the lights a little bit so they can see it. This is a picture I pulled off the internet of a Roman shield. So you can see it covers his face and most of his body down to his knees, and his on his shins, he had uh, bronze sheaves that would go down so that if he was hit in the shins, it wouldn't hurt him. And over his foot, there was often a plate of bronze also. So that gives you an idea. And what they could do is they could crouch down with this up there and put the ones behind them would put it over them. So I just wanted to get you an idea that it's large. 
the buckler was used to stave off the blows of another sword. This was used against arrows and any other missile that was thrown at them. Okay, you can keep it up there, but bring the lights up a little bit. Okay. So the purpose of the shield was different than the buckler. The buckler, again, was to hold off either a sword that was used to strike them, or sometimes they had something like a mace which would have ball of iron around it and that would be brought. It was used to protect themselves from a hand-brought blow that was coming against them. That was used against arrows that were shot at them. And so what often you would have is the enemy be lined up and they would have archers in front or even behind and they would shoot the arrows up in the air and they had them aimed in such a way that they would come down like, like rain coming down or in where we live now, snow coming down, coming down, but a rain of arrows coming down on you. And so they would have these shields they either put up like this or the ones in front like this which would provide a protection against this arrow flying in. The purpose of the shield was to provide a barrier between the the arrow coming in and their body. It was between them and the arrow. I'm I'm walking through this very slowly because it's going to it's the spiritual principle that Paul is trying to get across to us. It's very easy to just read through this quickly and miss the impact of this. So the shield provides a barrier to protect against the arrow coming in and the body. It would, it would absorb the impact of the arrow. So the arrow, if this shield was held up properly, would never get to the body. The buckler would you'd feel it against you, but this was absorbed by the shield itself. So we're talking right now about what the role of a shield is. Why did Paul use a shield to talk about the defense against this particular weapon? Okay. It absorbs the, we- the attack, the, the particular weapon of attack, which was usually an arrow. Instead of injuring your body, if there was any damage, the damage would be to the shield. All right, so that's what the shield's purpose is. Now, he says, picking up the shield of faith, that you may be able to extinguish the fiery darts or arrows of the devil, of the wicked one. So what they would do is they shoot these rain of arrows, and the shield would absorb that. If that wasn't going to work, what they would do is they would take the arrows and they would douse them in some flammable material, like gasoline, I don't know what they used back then, or oil. They would light them on fire and then they would shoot them in the air. So now what you've coming down on you is not just an arrow with a sharp point coming down by force, but it's, got, it's on fire. And the idea is that whatever it comes down on, it's going to catch that on fire. I'm sure you've seen, you know, movies where in the old days you had the, you know, they were shooting arrows at the fort. They couldn't get behind the walls, so they would shoot arrows that were on fire over them to land on the, on the log cabins inside, and the arrow, the, the sharpness of the arrow wouldn't cause any damage. If it did, wonderful. But the secondary purpose was whatever that arrow landed on, it would ignite a flame which would spread. Everybody got that image? Okay. All right. 
Now what the shield is intended to do is to take that fire and to take that impact before that flaming arrow hits the soldier. Okay. Now let's bring that over to the spiritual principle that he's talking about here. He said, above all, taking, that word literally means to pick up, pick up, take up the shield of faith which with you're able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Well, let's talk about why Paul uses the term fiery dart. A dart or an arrow has a sharp point. So wherever that arrow hits, it's going to hurt. But it could hit you in the foot, it could hit you in the arm, and it's just going to hurt. But if the arrow is on fire, not only will it hurt, but if you don't get it out, it's going to ignite whatever it hurts. And the greater danger is you're going to catch on fire. It's interesting that Paul uses this as an example of Satan's weapons. Back in the beginning, we saw that we may be able to stand against the wiles or the tricks or the deceits of the evil one. And here is an insight into how he works and his weapons. He will shoot at you as his weaponry from a distance, fiery darts. They'll prick you, they'll hurt you, and if you don't deal with them, they will begin to ignite in you something. Now, he doesn't shoot literal arrows at you, because if he did, you could duck out of the way. These are more subtle. They come as thoughts. They come as ideas. And the only access he has at you, this is so important to understand, because we're learning about the strategy of the enemy. In Newport, we have something known as the War College, and they have several of them around the country, which train, if I understand, senior officers in strategies of war. Mr. Gilliam here used to teach at the War College, so he could much better equipped to speak about this than I am. But, but, but what they'll do is they'll train the officers in strategies of warfare, and it's important to understand your enemy's strategy because that's what you're going to have to counterattack and be prepared for. And this is what this is designed to do. You have an enemy of your soul, and it's Satan. And he has weapons that he uses, and this is God's war manual because he tells us what the weapons are. And they're fiery darts, and his only access to get at you is through one or more of your five senses. Something you see, something you hear, something you touch, something you... you, you uh, I suppose, taste. I think I left one out. Smell. Something that comes at your senses. And we've learned when we studied renewing the mind, it isn't the initial thing that comes at your senses, it's what you then do with it in your mind. It's what your mind begins to think about it. Good example. You see a report on the news about, you know, that unemployment is down or something like that, or companies are laying people off. And then you go to work the next... That's something you heard. It's simply a fact. It may have absolutely nothing to do with you. And you go to work, and then you hear 
somebody at the water cooler or in the coffee room talking about, I heard that they laid so-and-so off. Or some company's going to buy us. That's another fact you heard with your ears or you saw with your eyes. It has access into you through one or more of your five senses. But then your mind begins to play with it if you don't understand what's going on. And your mind begins to play with it. And what we learned in renewing the mind is your mind begins to connect the dots to try to form meaning out of it. And you'll have wonderful help from co-workers and especially other Christians who will get in agreement with you about how, oh, this company's going down. We're all going to lose our jobs. You know, we're going to get sick. Oh, the flu's out there. I'm hearing this now, that the flu's the worst this year it's been in years. That doesn't mean it has to come near me. So what? I got a scripture for you when that happens. Psalm 91, a thousand shall fall at my right and ten thousand at my left, but it's not going to come near me. What's that got to do with me? Just because other people are having something happen to them doesn't mean it has to happen to me. I thought I was saved. I thought I was filled with the Spirit of God. I thought I have the Word of God. I thought I had God's promises. This is why we've got to be careful even in this time of year. And I've got to catch myself with the snow and the weather like that. It's so tempting to just keep talking about it. And it's fun. It's okay to joke about it. But what you keep, if you keep talking about it, you're, you're sowing seed into your mind about, oh, you know, it's so hard this time of year. It's so difficult this time of year. And why is it difficult this time of year when God lives inside of me? And I've got to fight this myself because I've had to catch myself and been doing that. And then you listen, and all I've been listening to is Christians. Spirit-filled Christians who know the Word. And we go around complaining about things and you do not understand. That's a fiery dart that we start shooting at each other. And we don't understand because it doesn't look dangerous in itself. Well, one arrow coming in, striking a building like this, big deal. We'll get to it someday. The problem is if it's a fiery dart, only takes one that you don't put out because it begins to spread. And how do these things spread? With our mind thinking about it. As a man thinketh, so is he most powerful thing you can do with the Word of God is to meditate on it. Roll it around in your mind. And as you do, the more you think about the Word, the more you meditate on the Word, the more it grows in you and the more it empowers you to have that Word. It's like a seed sown in you. But that's not just true of the Word. It's also true of Satan's lies. Your mind is a blank slate. It'll take whatever you put in it. And your heart is a blank slate. It'll take whatever's sown in it. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, I'm going to teach you a simple story about a farmer sowing seed. But understand this. He says, if you can understand this story, then you can understand everything else. But if you don't understand this one, you'll miss everything else. Jesus is telling us there, there's a principle in this parable that's critical for your growth as a Christian and he talks about seed being sown and it's the word being sown in our hearts and he talked about different type of soil in which it was sown and the, the, the second to the last is it was sown in good soil but that soil also had in it uh, uh, weeds and other things that draw, drew off the nutrients from the soil so that the good word, the seed couldn't produce a full crop And then Jesus goes on to explain to us 
that those are the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches and the lust for other things. The cares of this life are fiery darts. Worry about what you're going to eat tomorrow. Worry about whether we're going to make it. Worry about whether ISIS is going to come over here and destroy this nation. Worry about all this stuff. It's not innocent worry. Worry's not innocent. They're fiery darts. There are things that are legitimate things to be concerned about, but there's a difference between being concerned and worrying. Concern is accepting responsibility for something and taking care of it. Worrying doesn't accomplish anything. Worrying is when I take something that's happened and I begin to project that the worst is going to happen, where I have no basis for it. Fiery darts, they're thoughts. And you see something, you hear something, and then your mind begins to listen here, begins to put together an image. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it talks about that the, the, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. And he talks about imaginations and reasonings. And I, I just encourage you to go, if you missed all that, go back and get the series we did on renewing the mind. It's a long series, but it's worth going through. Because Satan works by sowing seed or fiery darts. And the whole point of this is to recognize that those fiery darts are not innocent. And the danger is, well, it's just one little dart. I can survive that prick. I can handle that. But if it's just an arrow, that's fine. But if it's fiery, if it's on fire, that one arrow can set your whole house on fire if you don't deal with it. But the Word of God tells us how to deal with it. The Word of God tells us to deal with it at a distance that's safe because once it gets in your system, once it gets in you and you start getting emotional about it, now it's much harder to put out. It's much easier to quench it before it strikes you and you have to deal with the emotion of it. So how do we do that? That's what that shows us. The shield of faith is what absorbs the fiery, the impact of that fiery dart. The 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 arrow on fire would hit that shield and it would extinguish it and put it out before it ever got to the soldier. And so the important thing to understand here is that in the spiritual provision that God's made for us, He's given us something that if we pick it up and exercise it, then the fiery darts won't hit you, it'll hit the shield and the shield can handle it, it extinguishes it. Everybody with me so far? Well, what is that shield? What is it that God's given to us that these spiritual darts, these thoughts, these threats of the enemy, fear, worry, all these things when they're shot at you, what is it that'll put them out so that they won't control you and consume you and and destroy? Because what Satan's after is to sow fear in you. Because what fear does is paralyzes us. It keeps us from hearing. You ever understand that if you're born again, you've got God's Spirit in you, you have in you someone that knows everything. Everything. Knows what's going to happen tomorrow. So whenever you get into a situation, whenever an emergency happens, there's no such thing as an emergency to God. God's never caught off guard. An emergency is a, a crisis that comes up suddenly, unexpectedly, and you're not prepared for it. But God's prepared for everything. So there's nothing that can happen to you that God's not prepared for. 
The problem is we don't turn to Him for the answer. We panic and try to handle it ourselves. Why? We get in fear. And when we get in fear, it's almost impossible to hear God's voice inside of you because fear and faith are like opposite ends of a magnet. They repel, or the same, they repel each other. Two positive sides of a magnet repel each other. So Satan, see, Satan, he's, he, he has no power over you, but he's very skilled at what he can do. The wiles, the tricks, the deceits of the enemy. He wants to lull you into thinking you can handle it. Or you can get several people together to handle it. When God's told us in His Word, in the war manual, how to handle it. And so it's the shield, it's, it's putting on the shield of faith. So what is it about faith? Why is it faith that extinguishes the fiery darts? Well, let's talk about what faith is. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 1. When we talked about the belt of truth, we talked about the fact that Satan deals in partial truths. And of course, there's no such thing as a partial truth because if something's not fully true, it's false. He deals in shadows. He deals in suggestions of things. He'll suggest to you what's going to happen because your mind begins to use it. He'll use your imagination. That's what worry is. Worry is taking something you've seen and letting your imagination run the wrong direction. And what we learned in renewing the mind is you can take that same imagination and take the Word of God and build up strength and power to defend yourself. All right. Hebrews chapter 11 is the classic definition of faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What does that mean? Well, there are two parts to that. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The word substance there is the Greek word hypostasis, which literally means to stand under. And it comes from a term that used, originally was used to describe a medical process where they would take fluids and they would let them sit there and they would distill down. And what it referred to is, is taking a fluid that had something in it and let it set. You let it set long enough substance that was in it will begin to settle to the bottom. Have you ever seen that before? And the, and the pure fluid rises to the top. That substance, that particles were mixed in there all along, but when they sat there long enough, it began to settle down because they had a weight to them that was greater than the, the weight of the fluid that they were suspended in. You know, if you ever put too much sugar in lemonade or something like that and you stir it around and what happens is it swirls around but when you stop if you put too much in what happens to it it gradually settles to the bottom and you can see it in the bottom the word substance refers to that pieces of material that were in the fluid that were at were there all along but the only time you could see them was when they finally settled to the bottom so what that's telling us is that there was substance in that fluid you couldn't see but it was there so faith is the substance 
of things not seen, the tangibility. The way you know that chair is there is because you can feel it. You know it has substance because your hand's touching it and your blessed assurance is resting in it. (laughs) And it's holding you up. But the only reason you know that's holding you up is your senses are telling you it's holding you up. And your mind is interpreting that. So substance means, substance is the way we're used to knowing something is really exists. I know this pulpit is here because I can feel it. You have a good indication it's here because you can hear me striking it. Because it has substance, I have confidence that it's real. So if I ever doubt, I don't know if this is real, I reach out and touch it. Sometimes I'll wake up in, in the morning and, and I don't know whether Anita's really in bed or not. I may feel as if she's in bed or not, but the way I know for sure whether she's still in bed or not is to reach over and touch her. And if I reach over and touch her, I know she's there now because I'm touching she, her substance. I've got her arm. She's there. I know she's really there. Are you, are you following me? I'm walking you through this slowly because this is what important understanding faith. So what substance is in this natural realm which is the confirmation to me that something is really there. I can tell, I have full confidence that Denny's here tonight. I'm assuming his mind's here, but I know Denny's here. Okay? Why? Because I can touch him and I can see him. Now listen carefully. That gives me assurance that Denny's real and he's here. And in the natural realm, that's how you give yourself assurance that something exists because your senses confirm to you, one of them or more, that it's there. Now in the spirit realm, you can't see things. Your senses can't discern for sure whether something's there. So you can't see God. So how do we know for certain that He's there? Because I can't confirm that God's there by touching Him. I can't confirm God's there by looking at Him. I can't confirm God's there by smelling Him or tasting Him. I can't confirm it with my five senses because God does not exist in this material realm which is all my five senses touch. God exists in another realm that is actually more real than this physical realm but I have need something assurance though I know He's really there. I need some assurance that I know that what He said is going to come to pass. And faith is the substitute for substance when it comes to the spirit realm that the touching of it is in this natural realm. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things your senses can't see. Evidence is what gives you confidence that it's real even though your senses can't detect it. And the problem is, we've grown up learning to depend on our senses for everything. And believe me, when it comes to this natural world, you should depend on your senses to a degree. So when you go home tonight and you pull out on on 195, your senses tell you there's traffic coming, believe them. So when it's boiled down to its simplest form, faith simply is believing something that God said simply because God said it with the same confidence I have as if I had it in my hands. So when God promises me that by the stripes of Jesus I've been healed, faith says because of God's character and God's nature 
and His Word, He cannot lie. His Word to me is the same as if I could actually feel the pain going away. His Word to me is actually the same assurance as if I could feel the tumor disappear. So I don't need to feel the tumor disappear to know I'm healed because I have God's Word for it. God's Word is the same or better than feeling the tumor disappear because in the natural world, the reason I know that I'm healed is because I don't feel the tumor anymore. But when it comes to the things of God, the confidence that I have that I'm healed is not because I feel the tumor going, because I have God's Word for it. So faith, faith is what allows me to believe what God has said about something regardless of what my senses are telling me. So when everything around you looks like it's falling apart and God says, I will sustain you, it doesn't matter what I see. What matters is what God has said. And I could tell you story after story from my life where I've seen that that's true, where the impossible happened because God's the God of the impossible from practical things about catching airplanes, flights that were impossible to catch. I don't mean chasing after the airplane. I mean, I remember one time when we were still in Bible school, and we came back here for a visit. It was the first year out there. And we came back, and uh, we were staying with friends, and, and they took us to Logan Airport for the flight, and we never thought about it. It was the day after uh, New Year's Day that everybody else was traveling the same day. And you couldn't get near the drop-off point. And I, this was before, long before you know, had to be there an hour or so before. Not only that, we have four children. Two of them are twins in strollers, and they're six months old. And we get out there, and it's chaos. And there's nobody around to help. And I think we had like 45 minutes or half an hour for the flight. And we were just at the curbside, and we couldn't get near the door. And my mind's going crazy. Because my senses tell me it's, it's done. Because... The system that they had at school is you didn't have, you couldn't cut the first day after a vacation. So it would cost you grades. And there was two of us. And my mind's going, all right, your grades are going to go down. You're in trouble. I don't know when we're going to get back. I don't know what it's going to cost us to do this. And there's four of us, there's six of us traveling. And my mind just freezing up on me. Fear is trying to come in on me. And, and my mind screaming, it's impossible, and I want to say the words, we're not going to make it. But we'd been in faith school, and we learned not to say those things. And I looked at her, I don't remember what I said to her, but I remember what I said out loud. I said, God, all I know is this, you sent us out there. If we should have been here earlier, it was not my fault, I didn't think of it, forgive me. I didn't presume on this. But God, we have to be in school tomorrow. And it looks impossible but you're the God of the impossible. I'm not going to worry about this. I'm going to take the care of this, and I'm going to roll it over you. This is now your problem, and I'm just going to sit here and watch what you do. Now, my mind's freaking out, saying this, this you know, because my, my logical mind, and this is where I used to look, practice law. I was familiar with Logan Airport, how impossible this was. I mean, not only have been in the door, but we got to go the whole length of the airport. And our flight was to go through St. Louis, St. Louis and then to Tulsa. No sooner did I say this out loud, I heard a voice behind me saying, anybody going to St. Louis? And I turned around, and here was a representative wending her way through this crowd of people, trying to collect people that were on that flight to St. Louis. I said, all six of us are. She said, you come with me now. She parted the sea of people. 
We walked through. She walked us right down. We got up and sat in our seats and had a chance to take a deep breath before they closed the door. I had a choice. I could have panicked and worried, and believe me, thoughts were flying at my mind, flying at my mind. But I had to deal with those thoughts with taking God's Word and putting God's Word out there to deflect the thoughts. Because Satan was telling me what was going to happen, but I have God's Word on the promise He's made to me, and I held that Word up, and I believed that Word, and I said that Word, and that put out those fiery darts. And I could tell you story after story after story. In fact, the more impossible the situation is, the clearer it is is when it's God that comes through. Absolutely impossible situations because there's no such thing as impossible for God. So the reason faith puts out... Because what is, what, some of the things God says about, about things like that. He says, be anxious for nothing. The Greek word for nothing means no thing. Nothing. Zip, zilch. Not just serious things. Be anxious for nothing. But then he tells you what to do. In everything that you'd be anxious about, make your request known unto God. That's what I did. I was starting to be anxious about this situation, but I chose to stop and pick up that shield of faith and say, God, I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how you're going to get us out of this situation, but I know you're well able. So I'm not going to be anxious. I'd act on that word. And when I did, I picked up that shield. See, faith acts. It doesn't just believe the word. It then acts on that word. And sometimes that acting is just what you say and then what you don't do. I just refuse to panic at that point. If we went down, then God failed. And so it's, it's, it's declaring what God's word says about it. So he says, be anxious for nothing. But then he tells you what to do. But in everything that you be anxious about, make your requests known unto God. Peter, he says, to roll your care over on the Lord for the Lord cares about you. The Bible says, I've never counted it, but I've read it, says over 365 times to fear not. Now I've got a choice to make. Am I going to fear or am I going to trust God's word? Satan always comes to undermine the word of God. Faith absorbs the fire and puts it out so that it never gets flaming in you. It never rages in you. It's put out before it does any harm to you. It's your protection. Let's look at an example of this. Let's go over to um, Matthew chapter 4. Again, Satan's avenue to get at you with his darts, the only way he can get those darts to stick in you is through one or more of your five senses. Faith is not based on your senses. Smith Wigglesworth used to put it this way. He says, I don't care what I see. I don't care what I hear. I don't care what I feel. It's what I believe that matters. And you, be- you can choose what you believe. Believing is not emotion. It's not a state of mind. It's an act of your will. I can choose to believe God's word or I can choose to believe my senses. Now, when your senses contradict God's word, you need to go with your senses. This is a story of Jesus in a spiritual battle. 
chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, to be tested by the devil. So here's an attack against Jesus. Isn't it nice to know you're not the only one Satan comes against? He comes against Jesus too. He's no respecter of persons either. All right. To be tempted by the devil. And when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. And now when the tempter came to him, he said... If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bricks. Think of that a second. Wait a minute. The devil knew he was the Son of God, and Jesus knew he was the Son of God. So what's he coming to do? He's coming to plant a thought of doubt. If. What did he do in the garden? I mean, he has, he has no tricks that are new. What did he do in the garden when he confronted the woman? Has... God really said that? He comes with questions. He knows not for most of us to not to come with a direct frontal assault because he's got to get around the shield. He's got to get around it. He's got to come in a you've, he's a trickster, so he's got to come at you from a little different angle. So he wants to say, well, you know, Danny, let's, let's just consider this. Let's, I mean, there's no harm in talking about it, is it, after all? Let's just talk. Let me just ask you a question. Are you really? Are you really saved? Jesus, if you are the Son of God. Eve, has has God really said that? I mean, is that really what he meant? I'll let you in a clue. God always means just exactly what he says. Satan's the one that never means what he says. Has, Has God really said that? And then because she listened to that, she didn't put it out. He then went to the next step and basically said, God's lied to you. He's holding something back from you. Because God knows that if you ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'd be like him. In other words, God's holding something back at you. And then he absolutely just confronts God's word. God lied to you. Well, he's going to try to do the same with Jesus. If, if, if you are the Son of God, because you see, if Jesus starts to even accept that term, he's accepted the question that maybe I'm not. Or even if Jesus is confident that he's the Son of God, which I'm sure he was, why would he need to defend that against the devil? The whole problem in the garden was they talked to him at all. Nowhere in God's commandments to them did he tell them to defend himself? Nowhere in God's commandments did God tell them to, dis- to defend against the devil, to-, to answer the devil, or to defend God's reputation. See, that where we get in trouble is when we get away from obedience. When we do- take what God said and we add our own thinking to it. We add our own, and the devil's very crafty at trying to draw us into that by saying, well, you know, what God really meant is this, or what it ought to mean is this. No, God's word means exactly what it says it means. And he got her, he, because be, there's nowhere, we, we've got some lawyers in the firm, in the, in the firm, <laughs> in, in the, we've got some lawyers in the church, and you understand this, that in a courtroom, no one has the right to address the judge unless they have standing in that case. The judge doesn't even have to hear you. You can be in the back and say, but I've got my, I know what happened. They're not even going to listen to you. 
you have to have been acknowledged. You have to actually file an appearance before you can even speak on behalf of a client. And if you don't belong to the, if you're not licensed in that area, the judge has to permit you to do that. The point is not anybody can just walk into the courtroom and say, and you could know exactly, you could be the eyewitness. But I saw him pick up the knife and drive it into it. I saw him do it. I can't hear you unless you've been authorized to speak. And so what Satan was really after in that garden, by asking her a question, the moment she answered him, she gave him permission to speak. The moment she got into any kind of discussion or debate with him, she gave him permission to speak because she had it to give, because they were put in charge. She chose to give him permission. And then her husband backed her up by not trumping it and vetoing what she'd done because he had the ultimate authority. Because in the New Testament it says the woman was deceived, but the man wasn't deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. Well, this is what the devil is trying to do with Jesus. If you are the Son of God. And so if Jesus answered his question or took his challenge, Jesus is acknowledging that there's some discussion about this issue. And what Satan is trying to do is trying to wiggle some little opening in there in which he can get this dart to stick. But Jesus knows how to fight spiritual warfare. So what did he do? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be bred. If, if Jesus took up that challenge, he's acknowledging that there's a question. Well, what does Jesus do? Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus picked up his shield of faith. And what he spoke back, he answered the fiery dart. He pulled it out, but he extinguished it with the word. He spoke the word back to Satan. Let's go on. Then the devil took him up to the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, see, he's persistent. He's persistent. Understand this Satan is not limited by truth. He can make anything up because he's not limited by truth. In fact, he can't tell the truth because Jesus said he's a liar and the father of lies and there's no truth in him. But what he will do is he will use truth and lie to you about it. He'll take a fact and then he'll, tell you, he'll lie to you of what it means. He'll interpret it for you. And so the best defense is to not get into a discussion with him. Just speak out the word. It is written. It is written. It is written. And that Jesus does it again. He says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it, Now the devil's going to try to be crafty. He's going to quote the word to him. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus didn't debate anything. He said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And the devil goes on and tempts him again. The point is this. Satan's fiery darts are to get in your mind so that you begin to think about things that he's told you. Think about, question who you are. Question whether you've done something right or not. One of the basic ones he uses are thoughts of condemnation. Well, what kind of Christian are you? If you really 
a question, you would have cared more about that situation. If you really love the Lord, you'd pray more. If you, if, oh, same if, isn't that interesting? If, if. He's, he's defining the debate. He's setting the condition. And he's not there to help you. He's there to destroy you. If you really are saved, this is what you do. Look at all the rest of them here. Oh, they all love the Lord. They all pray an hour a day. They all, but you're the one that doesn't. See, he likes to segregate you out. You're the only one that's thinking of these thoughts. The Word of God says there's no temptation that comes against man that's not common to all. Satan has no device he uses on you that he doesn't use on me and everybody else in here. You're not such a lousy Christian and such a rotten sinner that you're unique. He has no device that he uses against you that he doesn't use against me and everybody else in here. But he wants you to think so because he wants to think you're the one that's failing the most because he wants to segregate you out like the wolf trying to get the, one, the, the weak sheep out on the side so that he can devour it. But he can only do it with thoughts. He can only do it with thoughts and then once he gets the thought in you, you don't, he doesn't have to shoot anymore because they'll begin to catch fire and you'll begin to blow on the fire and, and you'll begin to get it'll be enraged. So condemnation is one of the main ones. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction because there is a legitimate thing where the Spirit of God will tell you you're wrong. And the difference is this. Conviction that comes from God has as its goal repentance. Conviction has as its goal to get you to face what you've done, confess it, and then be free of it. So it shows you a way out. If you've done this, you've done... And it doesn't say if. God never says if. Because God knows what you've done. It just hits you inside. Mm, I shouldn't have said that. And when it does that, you'll know what to do to correct it. Because the Spirit of God's goal is to free you of that sin and deliver you so that you're not carrying it around. Condemnation has as its goal wearing you down, wearing down your defenses, and, def- and discouraging you. So it never tells you there's a hope to get out of it. It always tells you, it tells you the reason you did this is because you're a bad person, you're a bad Christian, you're a failure, you'll never amount to anything. It always points to you, whereas conviction points to God. Say, this is what God's like, and you fell short of the mark. It's a different voice. Conviction is a still, small voice. It's just this knowing inside... I was wrong. Condemnation's like this pounding. It just keeps coming at you to wear you down. It's like, boom, boom, fiery darts being shot at you. So learning the Word of God to know the difference, the shield of faith. Because Satan will try to tell you this, you know, well, this is the Spirit of God convicting you when it's really Him trying to let you, have you put your defenses down and then you begin to turn on yourself. God is a God of love. So everything God does, He does out of love. Even His correction, the Bible says, is because He loves us. And it always has as its goal redemption, to deliver us and to set us free. The fiery darts of the wicked one. 
But in order to use the shield of faith, you've got to have built, you've got to build it. You have to build your own shield. Say, so what do you mean by build my own shield? Because if the shield of faith is based on God's word, you've got to put that word in you. When you get into the crisis, the Spirit of God will bring the word back, but he can't bring back word you didn't put in you. So it's not a matter of being legalistic, saying, I've got to read my Bible every day so that God's pleased with me. You're building that shield. You're building that shield by meditating on this word, by finding the promises of God. And there's so many, we have no excuse anymore. There's so many resources available. Just on my phone, I've got like 500 Bibles available. Or not that many, it's probably 300 Bibles available. Concordances, all this, I mean, we're just, it's almost too much. But there's no substitute for taking this word and, and, and meditating on the word, getting the promises of God, what God says about it, and just begin to go over it and over it and over it. And so when a situation comes up and you feel that, that you, one of the signs of it is you begin to feel shaky, you begin to feel afraid, you begin to worry. When you begin to become aware of that, that means there's a dart that hits you. Now you've got to pick up the word of God and go to what does the word say? Train yourself in this every situation. What does God say about this? And then I'm going to stand on what God says. And when you do that, it will extinguish the fiery dart. Because Satan has no answer for God's word. Satan has no answer for God's word. He's scared that that word will get down in you and take root. He's absolutely threatened that this word will get down in you and take root. And then you begin to speak it out. Because at that word, he quakes. At that word, he quakes. Because that word cast him out of heaven and into the hell where he resides today. And that word on your lips, can, the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But I resist him. He didn't flee. No, you didn't resist him. You didn't, you, you've got to resist him, not just say, get away. I mean, sometimes you've got to shout. Sometimes you've got to dig your heel in and tell him, Go! You've got to use some force with it sometimes to convince him that you really mean it because he's a deceiver. And taking up the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. We'll end here. We'll pick up next time. Father, we thank you that in the warfare that we're in, we provide everything that we need. And Father, we pray now that you would take the word that we've heard and help us to apply it in our lives tonight, tomorrow, this week, in all that lies ahead. Only you know what lies ahead in our lives. And we trust that you are preparing us so that not only can we survive, but we can be conquerors, more than conquerors, through Christ who loves us. Thank you, Father, for this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.